Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening to John chapter 5. Uh, that's where we're going to be spending our time today, John chapter 5. After spending some time in Galilee and teaching, Jesus and his ministry team, according to John chapter 5 verse 1, have made their way to Jerusalem for one of the feasts of the Jews. And if you remember, Jewish families were expected to make the trip to Jerusalem three times a year for three different feasts. Uh, they went to Passover in the spring, they went to Pentecost seven years or seven weeks later, and then they went to the Feast of Tabernacles that happened in the autumn time of the year. And these feasts were given to Israel as a time for worship. It was a time to thank God for all that he had done in their lives, for the harvest of crops, for uh, the new herds that had come into their possession. And it was a time for them to remember the great works of God from Israel's history. Now, we're not told which feast it is that Jesus and his guys attend here in John chapter 5. However, based on Jesus' earlier comments about there being four months until the harvest in John chapter 4, and as well as some other, uh, I think, very interesting details, I think we can uh, be pretty certain that this is likely the Passover that Jesus is attending with his disciples, his starting five, his ministry team. And if this is the Passover, then that means that Jesus has now entered into his second year of ministry. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that everything that takes place in John chapter 5 happens on a Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath was the only weekly festival that was observed throughout Israel. It was observed in people's homes. It was observed in the synagogues throughout the whole area. And so I want you to kind of think of Sabbath in this way. I want you to think of the Sabbath as kind of a mini festival, if you will, that pointed to these other big festivals that the Jews celebrated at least three times a year. And there were other festivals that they were encouraged to celebrate on top of those as well. So think of Sabbath as a signpost that was pointing to something else. It was a signpost pointing to these other festivals. It was pointing to the rest that God wanted to bring. It was one of those amazing things that the Jews did every single week. Now, let's look at John 5 and see what happens on this particular Sabbath. Verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. If you have a chance uh, to watch our five-minute Friday from, uh, that we sent out this week, then you know that Bethesda was a well-known place of healing. But it wasn't just a healing place for the Jews. Evidence suggests that it was also... Uh, 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 
shown or thought to be a healing place by the pagans as well. They regarded it as a sacred site as well. And the thought of the day was that when the waters of that well or that, that site bubbled up, the first person that got into the water was healed of whatever disease or problem or sickness that they had. And some people thought that the bubbling of the water was caused by an angel who come and stirred the water. Uh, the problem with this pool is it doesn't seem to have been all that successful. I mean, clearly, this man had been laying there for about 38 years. He had made a way of life out of waiting for the healing that this pool supposedly brings. And Jesus comes to him with an interesting question. He says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Now, what kind of question is that? I mean, of course he wants to be healed. He's been coming to this pool, hoping against hope that the water would stir and he could fall in. He wants to be healed, or does he? Jesus is asking, do you want to get better, or are you quite content to eke out your days lounging around here with the feeble excuse that somebody always gets in before you? You see, Bethesda spoke of the possibility of healing. It spoke of the remote chance of divine healing. But it was sporadic at best, and at worst, it was only an idle dream until Jesus came. Until Jesus came to town. I, I want to mention something I think is important here. I want you to notice, again, who it is that Jesus touches in this story. Notice who Jesus touches. The challenges of a paraplegic in the 21st century, which are considerable, pale in comparison with what a paraplegic would have had to deal with in the first century. I was listening to a paraplegic speak on this very uh, section of scripture. And he said, man, the, the problems of mobility, the problems of livelihood and social isolation are just the tip of the iceberg of what this guy would have experienced. He said, consider the problems of personal hygiene. And we could go into a lot of what struggles paraplegics have with bladder control and different things. But think about this too, he says. If the man moved at all, people had to carry him from place to place or he had to crawl. His hands must have been rough and torn from the streets. Most of his income came from begging or from the charity of friends and family. Bottom line, this is a guy everyone avoided. Interesting. Notice who Jesus touches. And I think it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't heal everybody at the pool that day. He handpicks this one guy. <laughs> Now, my question for you is, as you think about who Jesus touches, what are the implications then for us as a church? What are the implications for us as we look at who Jesus hangs out with, as we look at who Jesus touches, as we look at how he goes to those that everybody else has avoided? What, what are the implications for us as a church? They are vast, aren't they? Jesus, his ministry team right there with him, is changing the way that they see the world. He, he's asking them to begin to see through different eyes, to, to look at people differently, and to engage people differently. And my prayer is that God would give us his eyes today here at the Beltline Church of Christ. Give us your eyes. Let us see people the way Jesus did. Let's run to those that others avoid. Let's touch those that nobody else will. Those are some of the implications of what Jesus does. But back to our story. Jesus, in a flash, does what this pool stood for, but what it hadn't been doing very successfully. Because with a word, this man is healed. 
What's so fascinating about the story is we're not even told if this guy has faith. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Uh, As we'll read later, he finds out who he is later. We don't know if he has faith, but Jesus heals him. Regardless, this man now finds himself, after this healing, launched into the much harder but more satisfying way of life that goes with no longer being paralyzed. You know, we talked last week about the new that Jesus was bringing, right? Uh, We talked about how new wine needs to be in new wineskins because if you put new wine in the old wineskins, it just bursts and everything is ruined, right? Well, the healing that Jesus offers is the beginning of a new creation. And Jesus, throughout the scripture, is giving us hints at what this new creation is going to look like. And he gives us a really big hint as to what that creation is going to look like right here in this section of scripture. Look again at verse 8. Notice what Jesus says to this guy. He says to him, get up, right? Now, this is where this gets really cool. Listen to this. Get up. That is actually a word used regularly in the New Testament to describe resurrection. Jesus is asking this guy, be resurrected. Get up. Be resurrected. Jesus is giving us hints as to what the new creation is going to be. Jesus is bringing new life. He's bringing new creation. And it bursts through into the present world, bringing healing and bringing hope and even more, bringing new possibilities. So let me ask you this this morning. Do you need some new in your life? Do you need some new in your life? New hope, new mercy, new forgiveness? Do you need God to bring some new into your old relationships? Then know this. Even though Jesus rested after six days from creating the world, he is still bringing new into the lives of the people who trust him. So do you? You need some new in your life? Jesus wants to bring it to you, but here's the thing. You're going to have to answer the same question that this man answered here in John chapter 5. Do you want to be made well? Do you want the new that he offers? Do you want the new that he brings? Do you want God's new creation in your life? And here's why I ask the question. Because following Jesus, taking hold of the new that he offers... It has some consequences. Do you want to be made well? Please know when you choose to accept the new that Jesus brings, there are consequences. There are consequences for your life. More on that in a second. Let's look at what happens next in verse 10. It says now, or actually the end of verse 9, Uh, And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man? And who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. What an amazing statement that is. But verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal 
with God. The conflict in this section of scripture revolves around Jesus doing a miracle on the Sabbath. And if there was ever a missing of missing the forest for the trees moment, <laughs> this was it, right? Here's Jesus, it was just performed this unbelievable miracle and the religious leaders completely missed the miracle standing in front of them because it happened on a day they didn't think it should happen. You see, they believed that God could not and God would not operate outside of their own preconceived ideas. Did you hear what I said to you? How sad, how sad when we think by our actions and words the exact same thing. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jesus knew that healing this guy on the Sabbath would cause some problems? It's an easy question to answer, isn't it? Jesus absolutely knew that if he healed this guy and told him to take up his bed and walk, that it was going to cause a problem. So why did he do it? Because he needed to teach them and he needed to teach us an important lesson. A lesson that is connected to his identity, to who he is. Let me try to illustrate that this way. Let's suppose that you're taking a trip to Washington, D.C., right? Now, as you, as you start your journey, you're going to expect to see some signs along the way, aren't you? Especially as you get closer to the city, you're going you're gonna to say, oh, you're 100 miles from Washington, D.C. Oh, now you're 30 miles, now you're 10 miles, right? But when you get to Capitol Hill, do you need a sign that tells you where Washington, D.C. is? No. Why? Because you're there. You are in Washington, D.C. You don't need a sign anymore because you're already there. You don't need the Sabbath when what the Sabbath points to is standing right in front of you. Jesus is that Sabbath. Now, please don't misunderstand. The Sabbath law was not some silly rule that they no longer needed. Even though the religious leaders had completely ruined God's original intention for Sabbath by adding so many silly rules and regulations that led to absurd extremes like getting mad at a guy for walking who had just been healed from a 38-year disease. But this Sabbath was a sign whose purpose had now been accomplished. And that's why Jesus picks this guy. This is why he, he challenges the Sabbath, because it was a marker of time pointing forward to a time when time would be fulfilled, and that time was now happening in and through Jesus. And so all that Jesus is doing is showing us that God is in charge. And when Jesus says what he says in verse 17, my father has been working and I have been working, you need to understand what that means. When Jesus says that, what he is saying is, I am the living, breathing, walking, celebrating, victorious Sabbath standing in front of you. This is who I am. Something new was happening. A new time was being launched. Different things are now appropriate in that time. And the religious leaders understood his claim, and they decide he needs to die because of it. That may not be all that appropriate or, or, or amazing to us because Sabbath is not something we're familiar with. Oh, we know the word, we can tell you what it means, and we can diagram it, but that in those circles was absolutely breathtaking to say, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. 
for us, sometimes we read sections of scripture like this and we say, well, you know, I just wish Jesus would just come out and say who he is and would just say what he's all about. And I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> he's done that. And in case, uh, in case you have forgotten, l let's just read a little bit further because he makes it even more clear who he is uh, in the next few verses. Verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show you so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Why doesn't he come out and say who he is? Are you kidding me? He's told us clearly who he is. Jesus leaves no doubt about his identity. He's not someone who's just simply doing the Father's business. That's not what makes him unique. What makes him unique is his relationship to God. It goes far beyond anything humanity had ever seen or even thought was possible. I mentioned earlier that there are consequences that come with taking hold of the new life that Jesus offers. And so I want to talk about those now as we think about this section of Scripture. Let's talk about three consequences of following Jesus, and then we'll wrap this lesson up with a, a final point that I think is the main point, the main lesson that we're supposed to get in this section of Scripture. So let's start with consequence number one. Consequence number one is this. When you find Jesus healing, when you accept the new life that Jesus is offering, you cannot be who you were before that healing came. When you find Jesus healing, when you, when you come in contact with that new that he brings, you cannot be who you were before that healing came. So let me ask you, do you want to be made well? Because you cannot be who you were before you came into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you want to be made well? I skipped over this earlier, but I think it's important for us to talk about it. It's Matt, or excuse me, John chapter 5, verse 14. Did you catch this? Afterwards, Jesus finds this guy in the temple, and, and, and do you hear what Jesus said to him? See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. What is Jesus saying? What are the implications of what he's saying? Is Jesus making a link between this guy's sin and his physical illness? I don't think there's any other way to read the text than to say that's exactly what Jesus is saying. This man's sin and his condition were linked. In fact, Scripture indicates that some tragedies that we experience in this life may very well be a result of specific sins that we have committed. And this may be another reason why Jesus handpicks this guy. Because this guy needs to be released not just from his physical ailment, but from his spiritual ailment as well, just like the guy in Mark chapter 2. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you. Those with an infirmity have not necessarily sinned, and those who sin do not necessarily endure suffering as a consequence. 
It doesn't always happen that way. Suffering is not an index of a person's sin, but Scripture makes clear specific suffering may still come because of specific sins, whether those are consequences for our sins that we commit or or, or something else. And so the point is we have to continually check our hearts and guard against sin that is in our life. But the greater point... The greater point is this, we cannot be the same person we were after receiving healing from Jesus. Did, did you see what he said to him? Listen, he finds the guy and he says, you can't be who you were. Don't keep doing the same things that you've always done. You, you, you have accepted the new that I bring. You have to be different now. And the same is true for us. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we come up out of that water, we cannot be who we were. We have to be different. We have to uh, act different and think different and be different in every possible way. We cannot be who we were. So, you want to be made well? Or are you very content being the person you've always wanted to be? Do you want the blessings of the new life that Jesus gives without having to actually become the new person that Christ calls you to be? Listen, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. We're going to stumble. But those things don't define us anymore. And more and more and more, the people of God should be being released from those sins that were a part of who we were, but not who we are. And if you have become a Christian, you have become new in Christ. And to go back to what you were is to try to put that new wine in those old wineskins, and it's going to burst everything, and everything's going to be destroyed as part of it. Again, it doesn't mean we'll never struggle. We will struggle until Jesus returns or calls us home, but we fight against it. We live into the new that Jesus has brought into our lives. We cannot be who we were before. You want to be made well? It's not, let me get baptized so I can get my sins forgiven and I can have the hope of eternal life. Now I can go live however I want. That idea is so foreign to Scripture, it's not even funny. No, if you accept the new that Jesus brings, you've got to become the new that he desires you to be. Consequence number two, following Jesus is going to bring conflict into your life. This guy... This guy wasn't doing anything other than what Jesus told him to do. He was simply being obedient to the command of Jesus. And it was his obedience to Jesus that got him into trouble, wasn't it? Jesus said, get up, take your mat and walk. He did it and he got in trouble for it, right? Someone who had appointed himself as the Sabbath rules guru sees this guy walking with a bed and sparks begin to fly. So here's the truth. When we choose to do what Jesus says, it will cause conflict. And that conflict could come from a lot of different places in your life. From your family, from friends, from relationship, even from people at church. Because the bottom line is this. When you're serious about following Jesus, you're going to make some people unhappy. You're going to make others feel guilty by living into the new life that Jesus has brought you. And you will, through sometimes no fault of your own, by the new life that you live, destroy the excuses that everybody else are clinging to. Because here's the truth. People would rather complain, fight, fuss, and destroy than they would change. And following Jesus brings conflict. And I just, let me just say this. 
following Jesus in the world we are currently living, if it stays on the course that it's on, is only going to get more difficult. It is only going to cause more and more conflict in the world that we're living in. So you better buckle up and get ready. But the better question is, do you want to be made well? Following Jesus has consequences. You can't be who you were. And you're going to experience conflict in your life because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to be made well? The final consequence we'll talk about, there's probably more. Of course there's more, but we'll just look at three. After you've been made well, you have a responsibility to tell others of his name. This man didn't even know who Jesus was and when he was healed, but did you see what he did as soon as he learned who Jesus was? He went and told people. Now, I don't think he knew that these scribes and leaders hated Jesus the way that he, they did, but he went and told them, hey, hey, the guy that healed me, he's Jesus, right? And so we spoke earlier about Jesus' identity, right? To understand who Jesus is, comes with an op a responsibility to tell others about that identity. Please understand, though, when you speak about who Jesus is, it's going to lead you right back to conflict or consequence number two. It's going to lead you right back into conflict. People do not have a problem with you saying that Jesus is one way to God, but if you, as his name demands, make him the only way to God, people are going to have a problem with you and that. Trouble will follow. It did for the early followers of Jesus, and it will for you as well. In fact, standing up for Jesus is going to be met with more and more resistance, as we've already said. So do you want to be made well? Are you willing to count the cost of following Jesus? Because living into this new me life means I've got to speak of his name. I have to. I, I cannot remain silent. You want to be made well. Can't be who you were. Conflict's coming. And you have an opportunity and a responsibility to speak of his name, do you really want to be made well? Or are you content just coming to church and pretending everything's okay? I told you there's one main lesson, and I want to finish with that today. Look at verse 25. We'll finish this little section. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's the main lesson I think we're supposed to take away from this section of Scripture, and it's simply this. Our God is a resurrecting God. Our God is a resurrecting God. He told this man in need of healing, be resurrected, right? Get up. And here in these verses, he's telling anyone who will listen, our God is a resurrecting God. So, do you need some things resurrected in your life? Relationship with your spouse, relationship with your parents, relationship with your children. Do you need some resurrection in those areas? 
Man, he is a resurrecting God, and I want to leave that with you. You need joy resurrected in your life. You need a resurrection of your faith. Our God is a resurrecting God. He is really good at taking things that look hopeless and dead, and what he's able to do is breathe new life into that that looks hopeless, that looks dead. He brings new life because he is a resurrecting God. And know this too, resurrection is coming to those who refuse to obey Jesus, just as it's coming to those of us who do. All will be resurrected, but new life is found only for those who trust and obey Jesus. And so my prayer is, today you will choose life. You will choose the new that is available to you through Jesus Christ right here, right now, today. And if you've already given your life to Jesus, then remember that this new comes with responsibilities, with consequences. You can't be who you were. You're going to experience conflict, but you have a responsibility to tell of his name. And if you're here today and never obeyed the gospel, never given your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? He's a resurrecting God. He can take your sin, as we already talked about, and throw it as far as the the east is from the west. All he needs is your heart saying, I want to be made well. I want to be made well. I want to be made well. So do you? Do you want to be made well? Then come, believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Repent of your sins. Confess his name because God doesn't want cowards in his army. He wants people who are going to stand up for him. Get baptized for the remission of your sins and then live into the new that he gives and that he brings and that he offers. It's up to you what you're going to do with that. But my prayer is you will choose life because life is found only in our resurrecting God. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week.